today's uh, topic, and I'll just kind of fast forward here on my on my screen so you can kind of see where we're at. That's an understanding of times verse. But we're now going to start critical theories. If you have not heard of theory or critical theories or any of these sort of things, you are now going to hear about these. This has been in the news a lot because of a specific subset of it called critical race theory. Uh, but it's actually bigger than that. And you'll have people running around saying, well, there, this is communism or this is Marxism. And my answer to that is, well, kind of. It's, it's actually married to this other one that you got an asterisk around here, and that's uh, postmodernism. It is not classical Marxism. It's something else. There, it's, it's a new thing, and it's like typical postmodernism, if you know anything about it. It's kind of notoriously hard to define, and it means different things to different people. And so it's really tricky, but there's some historical things and some worldview things that I think we can parse from this that will be very helpful for you as we go into this modern self and postmodernism and all these things. So in the previous, the first semester, if you will, we were in the modern self. And so that was the idea of how do people think of themselves? We think of ourselves as highly individualized, expressive individuals, right? Expressive individualism. I need to express outside what I feel inwardly. My, how I have fulfillment is this inner sense of psychological well-being. There's no thing that I'm accountable to outside. It's an imminent frame. Everything is just the material, natural world, right? And then the sexual revolution kind of undid everything, right, in a sense, in that now I think of myself not only as an expressive individual, but an expressive individual who is gendered and sexualized and those sort of things, right? So those are how we think of ourselves. And bad things or evil things are the things that stop you from being that expressive individual, right? That's kind of how we thought we taught. So the first semester was about just all the different thinkers and all the different ways that people come to that idea of the modern self. So what's going to happen now is we're going to pivot and move now towards a broader thing. This is more of what we call a left-headed kingdom issue. In other words, the area where we run into things like government and policing and politics and those sort of subjects. Christians do have something to say about that, just so you know. <laughs> uh, the scriptures have things to say about that, just so you know. In Romans and in 1 Peter and in many other passages, we do talk about things like civil government and the proper role of government. And how God rules throughout all the kingdoms. So we do have something to say in the kingdom of the left, but it is not partisan. So one of the things that I have to be careful about is I take positions on issues that are biblical or worldview issues, but I don't endorse candidates because I'm not allowed to do that, number one. Um, and number two, because the church can't associate itself too closely with any party or system of government, right? Because then what happens when that party or system of government changes, right? Are you, do you have to change too? And so you got to be careful, right? But we, what would never changes, and actually Pastor Chris talked about that today, what never changes is God. God is immutable. He is not subject to change. All right, so critical theories is where we're going to zoom in on this. And again, postmodernism is going to keep showing up and all this stuff. But cultural Marxism is the word you're going to hear me use today. Now, you'll hear some people on what I call the progressive left say that that's like an anti-Jewish conspiracy theory because the Nazis used a term called cultural Bolshevism. But critical theorists use this term cultural Marxism. It is not classical Marxism. And that's where it's going to get a little tricky. And this is where how you define words becomes a thing in true postmodern fashion, how you define your words matters. So let's get into this a little bit. I'm going to show you the books that I'm going to be uh, referencing. The first one on the left there that you see on your, or on your screen, if you're watching is a fault lines of Odibaka. Now this one's a little bit more polemical. He kind of takes no prisoners. We're going to watch him and he's a little bit more <laughs> diplomatic in the presentation we're going to watch. In this book, he's kind of in your face a little bit. Um, and he's on purpose, because that's why he calls it fault lines. And he's writing to evangelicals, so he's writing to his tribe, 
So it has a little bit of a polemical tone. Does that make sense? So if you don't want that, if you, if you don't think it's fair, or you think he's being a little bit too harsh, I kind of get it. But it's still worth reading to kind of see how evangelicals, especially Baptists, are dealing with this issue right now, especially with uh, social justice and racist race issue. He himself is African-American. He's black. Okay, and so he comes from that perspective. Um, I'm going to give you his biography later. On the right, another one that came out recently, why social justice is not biblical justice. That's an interesting title because one of the reasons Christians have a hard time on the issues we're going to look at this semester is we do believe in a God of justice. We do believe in a God who cares for those who have been harmed or oppressed or marginalized. I mean, Jesus reaches out to women of lesser status, like the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Or children who did not have high status during the time of, of ancient Israel. And when you see that, you're like, well, Jesus is about justice. And you read those famous passages in the Old Testament where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and all these other different things. And so we, we know that. And so when we hear the word justice, we assume must be good. Right. Because God's a God of justice. But biblical justice is not the same as social. justice. They're, they're different things. Right. Just so we, just so you know. So we're going to get into that. And that book kind of talks through that. A couple other books. Another one that's more diplomatic, um, that's trying to put like the best foot forward or kind of saying the glass is half full. The more optimistic view is this one on the left. Confronting injustice without compromising truth. This is a good one. It's got, a, it got contributors from all over the, the demographic and economic spectrum. Thaddeus Williams is kind of like the editor of this, and it talks about some of those issues as well. This is a good one. If you know the Colson Center or Breakpoint or Industries, what would you say, which I've shown in here? They recommend this one. They were giving it away at one point with a donation. It's really good um, in terms of distinguishing between justice, as most Christians understand it, and then what he calls social justice B. There's like a B. And B is kind of the version that like the media right now is kind of uh, is kind of running on. So I, I in particular, again, if, so if you think that this one here is a little too polemical or like for people that are on the fence is a little too polemical. This one on the left. Um, this one is a little bit more friendly, but still Christian, still classical Christian worldview confronting injustice without compromising truth. And I'm showing you these books right now just to show you what I'm pulling from. Because I'm pulling from all this stuff. And so you can see this. And then on the right, Gene Edward Beef. Again, so I put this up on the uh, first semester as well. But post-Christian, a guide to contemporary thought and culture, he gets into some of this as well. Um, and he's somebody that's actually in our Missouri Senate. Um, so somebody. So just so you know who he is, he taught at Concordia, Wisconsin for a while. He was at Patrick Henry College. Um, he still blogs and is still kind of a, uh, an elder statesman on postmodernism in particular. And so I always loved Gene Edward Beef. Um, he actually wrote the book on vocation, um, God at Work. I don't know if you've ever seen that book before. We actually did it at the church like 10 years ago or something like that. But Gene Edward Veith um, specializes on that as well. He has another book called The Theology of the Cross, which is like a lot of people's introduction to uh, confessional Lutherism. Um, it's very popular. It's in this like third edition. So Gene Edward Veith, he's an author that I say, read lots of Veith. You read all the Veith you want. It's awesome. Okay. Gina Ravita is there on the right, post-Christian. So again, these are all sources. I have more than this. I have some secular sources that I use as well when we talk about uh, what we're going to start today, which is critical theories, cultural Marxism, what those terms actually mean and where they're coming from. And so what is the solution? I want to start with scripture first on this because scripture is going to tell us something first. And I want to start with Galatians 3. This is often read actually during the season of either Christmas or Epiphany. And it's up here, you can see it on your screen. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, this is often read uh, at the circumcision and name day of Jesus on the eighth day of Christmas because Christ fulfills the law. And so the law is a tutor. It's an instructor. That's the passage that immediately precedes this. But the reason I bring this up right now as Christians to kind of start our theology here, our identity is in Christ and it starts there. It does not start on all these subgroups. Okay. It doesn't start with, well, I am a white cisgendered heterosexual Christian. No, I'm just a Christian first. You got it. If we get that wrong to start, this is going to be really confusing for you. Okay. We start with our identity in Christ. We are people that are created in his image. And it starts there. We have a common humanity that comes from God. It does not come from all these different subgroups that we happen to exist in, in the kingdom of the left. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are all one in Christ. Does that make sense? We need to start here. This is an important passage for us here in Galatians 3. Um, because what's going to happen is, is in the kingdom of the left, in these kind of these Marxist, neo-Marxist ideas, or these critical theory ideas, is all these different identities are like the most important thing. So when we get to something like intersectionality, you are a black, female, lesbian, disabled. Well, no, stop. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Because your emphasis, it's the exact opposite of what Paul's saying here, which is that you are all one in Christ. Those things actually are not important. What's important is whether or not you're in Christ or not. That's what's important. See the difference in worldview? That's going to matter. So just make sure this Galatians 3 passage, big deal, because critical theories is going to be almost the opposite of what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. Here's another one. This is Ephesians 2. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you are by saved. You've been saved, right? Not of works. Recognize that. Lest any man should boast. It's often a memory verse. And then in Ephesians 2, it says you're set aside for good works after God saved you. Remember faith, by the way, in that passage. Faith itself is a gift, right? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So faith is a gift. Okay, but then we get a whole nother section in Ephesians 2 that almost nobody knows about, but we need it, and it's going to be very important for our readings here. Look at this. This is Ephesians 2. This is Paul again. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is important because that means that Gentiles and Jews, this is related to Galatians, were one people of God now. So again, there's a unity in Christ. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on whether or not you fulfilled this, the eight-day circumcision requirements of the covenant or all those different dietary and clothing laws and everything else. We are not one in Christ. Gentiles, and everybody in here, as far as I know, is a Gentile Christian, have now been brought near. There's not a division there anymore. Okay, and that's important. Paul's saying that. Now, he's doing that to the Ephesians so they don't brag about it. Look what it says next. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, that's the circumcision and the uncircumcision, the Jews and the Gentiles, that's the both here, okay? Who has made both one, and having broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
So the Jews and the Gentiles, because of the law and because of the regulations and because of the old covenant, were at enmity with each other. They're button heads. Now, if you were a Gentile, you could join the Jewish community. You could eventually get circumcised or become a proselyte, kind of a righteous Gentile that lived side by side. You would, you know, obeyed some of the festivals and lived in under Jewish law. You could do that. But for the most part, there was an enmity there. And you know from the, the New Testament how Pharisees in particular viewed non-Jews, right? Especially though, and even Jews who weren't faithful enough. Okay, so that gives you an idea of, of the context of what Paul's saying here. Look what he says. He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. One of the most dangerous things about these theories in the church is that it actually disunites. It creates divisions in the church because it separates us according to ethnicity or according to gender or according to orientation or according. It separates us from all that and says you're not one anymore. What's more important is the black church versus the white church versus the Asian church. See what I mean? Or the American church and the English church and the African church. And we start putting ourselves in all these sub identities. These theories see the modern self is easier for Christians to see the problem because you can look at the modern self and say, well, yeah, I'm not supposed to be selfish. Yeah. God is the ruler of the universe. We don't just have a material, natural world. So the first semester, most Christians, most can recognize the problem. This one is hard because again, in the cultural imaginary, what where we just kind of assume about things. We talk this, we talk about these identities more than you would admit. When we get to Vodibaka, I'm going to show you Vodibaka in a second. They'll say things like, why do we talk about politics? Like this guy's doing good with left-handed redheads in the South, but this guy's doing good. Why do we talk that way? Why? It's because of these critical theories and this cultural Marxism ideas that have kind of percolated. It is the opposite of what we see in Paul, where we are all one in Christ. And those divisions have been knocked down. There's a unity now between Jew and Gentile, between male and female. You see what I'm saying? This has been lost now. There's a common humanity or a common identity that has been lost. I have a, a last passage here for you here. And this is from Acts 17, 22 to 24. You want to know the biblical answer to racism? Here it is right here. Look at this. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. Look at that. One blood, every nation. Common humanity. See that? There's your answer right there. You want the biblical answer to racism? It's right here. You don't need critical theories. It's right here. Okay? One blood. All nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and the hope they might, they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So here's Paul on, at the Areopagus, sometimes called Mars Hill or Ares Hill. It's a huge rock just below the Acropolis. So if you know where the Parthenon is, if you've seen the Parthenon before, it's a temple to Artemis. So here's Paul on this in this forum, this kind of open air area on this rock, saying, hey, hey, men of Athens, 
the faith that I'm going to proclaim to you, you kind of been looking for this. I'm going to show you how I have the answers to your questions. This is not a, okay, well, you're a different culture, so you just be you. This is a universal faith for all humanity. Okay, this is a universal objective truth. Every single human being has their being. They're only alive because God allows them to be alive. There is a transcendent order, and every single human being is of one blood, all nations among men. Okay, we're all, if you go far enough and back far enough, cousins, distant relations to each other. Doesn't matter, skin tone, hairstyle, eyes, height, shape. At some point, there's going to be a connection somewhere. It's easy to do that mathematically, by the way. And I don't know why we don't think about this. You know, it's like, how many of you had four grandparents, but eight great-grandparents? And then 16, you see what I'm saying? At some point, there's going to be some common ancestors. Okay, so now I'm unmuted here so the people on, online can see me. We're having a little bit of a technical thing, and it's odd because it shows my, my verse up here. But I'll re reboot it here. In the meantime, if you have this sheet, and I'll hold this up for the folks that are online. There's a sheet. And if you want this, I can send it to you, those of you who are following. This why study this. I'm going to start with this as this loads, and then I can reboot the, the thing. So Vodi Bakum, I'm going to introduce this. Vodi Bakum's an African-American speaker. He wrote the Fault Lines book, but he has a numerous uh, uh, bibliography. He's written tons of stuff, academic journals. He's actually Dr. Vodi Bakum. And so Dr. Vodi Bakum has his uh, PhD from, I think, it's Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Um, but he also did postdoctorate work at Oxford. And so he's very, very intelligent man. He grew up in South Central LA, had two cousins that were gunned down um, on the streets of LA. He was a young African-American man raised by a single mother. Fits every stereotype. You see what I'm saying? And he rejects critical theory, rejects the concept of white privilege. And yet here's this African-American man. You see what I'm saying? Fascinating dude. He uh, had a football scholarship to Rice and also New Mexico State. So again, fitting every stereotype. He's got a football scholarship, a uh, really huge, large man. His mom was a Buddhist. His dad was a social justice advocate. He, knew, he didn't grow up with his father, but he knew who his father was. His father worked at like halfway houses and you know people that got out of prison, tried to get them reintegrated. I mean, this guy has all the pedigree you want on this issue. And yet he rejects some of these modern theories. It's kind of interesting. So that's who, and he'll, I'll let him talk a little bit about his background. Let me load this back up again. Might take a second. Because I actually don't need those slides anymore. So it actually is kind of a fortuitous thing. All right. So as I load him up, what I'm going to do is I'll probably just slide this over and then people can see this. Because really it's not so much, there's not like a lot of graphics or anything. It's more of what he's saying that's the important thing. So I'll do it that way and it'll be faster as we go here. But he's going to speak at a thing called Founders Ministries. It's a uh, it's from like a, an evangelical kind of Baptistic. He is a reformed uh, 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 scholar. So he's somebody who's very Calvinistic in his theology. He upholds, for those of you who know this sort of thing, the 1689 London Baptist Convention confession. So he's very, very uh, orthodox, a reformed Baptist preacher, but he's a very, very good preacher. And I want you to hear how he talks about cultural Marxism. So I'll let him kind of introduce it. He'll kind of talk about why do we have to study this? And he's going to kind of set the tone. Now, this is important. He gave this talk in 2018 or 2019 before the pandemic, before the Trump versus Biden election, before George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, before any of that. He gave this this uh, this speech okay, on, at Founders. And here's another thing is he's been writing about these issues since 2004. He was blogging about this way back before Barack Obama was elected president and other things. And he said, I'm not big on I told you so's, but I told you so. 
because he, he, he predicted a lot of these things. Fascinating individual. And so he's been an expert about this for a long time. He's been writing about these issues for 15, 16 years, well before a lot of the stuff even entered our brains. When we thought started hearing things like critical race theory and all this stuff, he was been talking about it way before everybody else because he knew that this was a danger for the church. Okay, so I want you to hear him. This is him at his most irenic, peaceable, and less polemical. He can get kind of, he can get in your face a little bit, you know, just letting you know. Comes from that kind of African-American tradition in the South where they kind of, they get on you a little bit, you know, when they preach. But this is him at his most kind of scholarly and his most irenic as he talks at Founders Ministry. So I'm going to let him introduce it. Then I'm going to fast forward. And when I fast forward, um, you're going to get a little bit more. So I'm going to move this screen so people can see it like that. And then they'll see the sound. So forgive this and I'll just kind of aim it at people. And then we'll start him. Yes. Yes. So look up Vody Bakum. You can see his name, Cultural Marxism. And if you want to watch his whole introduction, he takes about 20 minutes just to introduce like who he is and where he's coming from. I'm going to skip that. If you want to hear all of that, you can get to that on your own because I just for the interest of time, I'm going to move forward. So I want you to hear how he talks and then we'll fast forward to when he starts the topic. My assignment tonight is to address the topic of cultural Marxism. And it's a topic that I have been talking about for a long time. And it's a topic that most people didn't want to hear me talk about. But now, um, for some strange reason, people are finding it uh, more relevant. There's a passage of scripture uh, that I want to read for us. It's from the now he's going to read the same passage we've been doing. Understanding the times, men who understand the times. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit past that. He's going to read that passage and say we need to understand the times. Same passage. And 22 commanders from his own. Here we go. Their command. Listen to what he says. Swords. Shield. Mighty men of valor. You need all that. Amen? But you also need some men who understand the times so that you know what you ought to do. And that's what I hope this session will be about. I hope that it will be about us trying to understand the times. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to just offer you a dry lecture on the topic of cultural Marxism, which is kind of hard not to do because it is cultural Marxism. But what I want to do is sort of put this in a context to help you understand why it's important, why this matters. Uh, currently, in this discussion, in this debate, and I even hesitate to call it a debate, and I'll talk more about that as the weekend goes on. One of the reasons it's not really a debate is because there's a lot of name-calling, right? Uh, people address the issue of social justice. Some topic comes up. One person says it's a social justice issue. The other person calls them a cultural Marxist, and then they turn around and call the person a racist, and that's, that's about all the debate that you get. It's, it's, it's name-calling, and things get short-circuited because of the name-calling. And often, neither side is being completely honest. And we know it. 
often the person who's looking at their brother and saying, ah, you're just a cultural Marxist, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the person is, even though they may believe that they're espousing some of the ideas that come from cultural Marxism. And generally the person who turns back and says, ah, you're just a racist, um, knows better. But both sides recognize that that's a way to shut the other down. Because right now, these are not issues that are being debated. These are not issues that are being discussed. And in fact, in many instances, the mere act of debating and discussing these issues is considered to make you a cultural Marxist or a racist. On the one hand, if the one person says that this was an injustice and you turn around and want to debate and whether or not that was an injustice, they look at you, how, how dare you? I just told you that this was an injustice. How insensitive can you be to not acknowledge this injustice? And on the other hand, the other person who, do, who genuinely doesn't believe that an injustice has occurred is trying to point out why an injustice hasn't necessarily occurred here and have a finger pointed at them and are called a racist. And they say, wait a minute, really? How long have we known each other? You know that's not who I am. And so we end up just sort of not addressing the issues. Not debating the issues. That's the great irony here. Is that there are issues that need to be dealt with. That we, that we need to press in on. That we need to press each other on. But this has been declared ground where we're not allowed to fight. Because merely deciding to debate and argue these issues disqualifies you and for some people it even disqualifies you as a Christian you're no longer a brother or a sister if you're not right on these issues another part of the problem is our ignorance of or misuse of the terms which is one of the reasons that I want to address this tonight but first let me tell you what I'm not saying I'm not here to state that all who disagree with me are, are, are Gramscian cultural neo-Marxists. <laughs> Gramscian neo-Marxists. That's actually a very specific thing, and it'll make sense when we get there. So do you get what he's, where he's coming from on this? And here, I'll let the people see me here, because like I said, I'll just quicker. So do you get what he's saying, though? He's basically saying something along the lines of, you, there's, no t there's no debate. People have already had their minds made up, and if you even say that there's a debate, the, con the conversation's over. Now, I think you would agree with me that as Christians, our standard is much higher than this. Okay, and that's one of the reasons he's doing this. As Christians, we should be able to actually look at these marketplace of ideas and have a discussion about it. But we can't now, because if you say that I don't I don't agree that that's an injustice, then you're automatically shut down. You're automatically told that you're racist or that you have privilege or whatever. And you can't talk about it or vice versa. You have some people I would all call. And again, I don't like these right left turns, but people on the far right that say if you say those sort of things, well, that means you're a communist. Okay, that doesn't help either, right? You get what I'm saying? We need to get past those labels and actually start talking about ideas and be specific about what we're talking about when we talk about things like justice and those sort of things. That's why he has labels on there. That's why I, I put that. And you can tell I'm copying him on this. But even debating, right? Even debating or having a discussion is racist or insensitive. You're disqualified from the debate just by having the debate, right? You have to assume that this stuff is true right at the beginning. 
That's why these conversations are so frustrating because you can't get past the, the label or you can't get past because this is my narrative. I just told you, this is my story. And if you don't agree with my story, then therefore you're racist or you're insensitive or whatever. It's like, well, no, your personal narrative doesn't determine truth. That's going to be something that's going to come up here in a little bit when we get to critical theories, because it's all about personal narratives. It's about stories. Tell me your story of oppression. Tell me your story. And if you question it, well, the only reason you're questioning that is because you have privilege. You can't talk about objective truth. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So these sort of things are very important because that, that sort of idea that you have these sort of, uh, that, that, that your story trumps truth is a big deal for Christians. Because remember what I showed you with Paul? Paul in Acts does not say, well, you have your truth and I have mine. This, see how this is relating to the first semester a little bit now? Okay. But if you experience injustice or you think you see an injustice, you're not allowed to question it. Otherwise, you see what I'm saying? We're going to get into this. That's why I put this and that's why I wanted you to hear that introduction. And then I have on your sheet, but he's going to say something similar. I'm summing this up again. If you want to see the whole talk, I got to limit this for time. Uh, is he'll say words matter. How we use words matter. How we define our terms matters because the gospel is at stake. What is salvation? What is justice? What is injustice? If we can't agree on those things, how can we even preach? If we can't even talk about what the Bible says and what those words mean in the Bible, how can we, how can we share the gospel message? I mean, the gospel is at stake here in terms of what the nature of the existence is, what the nature of sin is, what the nature of injustice actually is. It's the gospel is at stake. So I'm going to fast forward when he's going to start explaining cultural Marxism. It's about 22 minutes in or so. And I'll see if I've got this. That's why it's handy to have this on the player here. One of the things that makes the discussion difficult, classical Marxism, Karl Marx was an economist, right? I mean, he, classical Marxism is an economic system. You, you know, we know about the, the bourgeois and the proletariat. We know uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. We, we know about the, the, the uprising of the masses, we, you know, to, to, to overthrow capitalism. We know that Marx was a communist who wanted to see capitalism overthrown. He saw capitalism as oppressing the masses. He also saw religion as the opiate of the masses that allowed them to be oppressed by capitalism. So he was rabidly atheistic. And this is one of the things that makes it difficult to talk to people about cultural Marxism, right? Because classical Marxism is something that for most Christians, for most evangelicals, for real Christians, for real evangelicals who are not way out there on the fringe somewhere, just wouldn't identify with Marxism. And if we don't understand the difference between classical Marxism, this economic system, and cultural Marxism, which is very different than this in its, in its approach, then if you just hear the word, it's like, well, how can you say that? How can you suggest that? Three main ideas. Let me give you this just to understand Marx, a summary of his salient points. Number one, he believed that history had really three stages or epochs. Number one, the ancient stage. Secondly, the feudal stage. And thirdly, the capitalist stage. He believed that he was witnessing the rise and would see eventually the fall of the capitalist stage. The second idea was the idea of class consciousness, that each one of these societal epochs contained internal contradictions 
And these internal contradictions is what would lead to struggle and would eventually lead to the next phase, which led to the third idea, his idea of historical determinism, that ultimately capitalism would fall. Capitalism had to fall. Why? Because the way he viewed history was history was a view of struggle, was a a series of struggles, a series of conflicts. He was a disciple of Hegel. So this was sort of his dialectic, if you will. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? So capitalism had to fall. Workers of the world would unite and there would be a revolution. And there was, right? But not everywhere. And so toward the end of his life, and then during the life of his followers, they tried to explain and understand why it is that capitalism didn't fall. I mean, if capitalism is exploitation of the masses, and, and if history is all about these conflicts, and if this conflict is going to come, and if the next thing that is going to come is a post-capitalist society, then why haven't we seen this? Enter the cultural Marxists. So to sum that up, I have that on your on your sheet there, just to kind of uh, just to kind of explain that. But so again, just classical Marxism. You have Marx and Engels, right? They wrote that's the Communist Manifesto, right? There's another work called Das Kapital by Karl Marx, right? If you recognize some of those names, and again, it was primarily concerned with economics. It was not talking about things like art and music and i mean he would talk about it but it was almost always subservient to economics okay so it's always about so you have an upper class the owners of the means of production okay or the capitalists the venture capitalists the people that own all the factories or the people that own all the wealth right those guys the bourgeoisie they are on the top okay and they are a class of individuals marx is all about class class warfare okay so that upper class is exploiting using their power and exploiting the labor, the work of the hands of the, of the working class, right? The proletariat. Okay, so that's what those terms come from. And so you have two classes of people. You have an oppressor and an oppressed. Remember that because the cultural Marxists are going to use that, but in different ways. So that's why, did you notice what he says? The reason that Marxism is tricky is because this isn't classical Marxism that we're actually going to talk about today. Most Christians are not seduced by this because it's atheistic. Because remember, first semester, it's the imminent frame. The only thing that exists in the world is the material world. It's only naturalism. Christians are usually not seduced by that, right? That the only thing that exists is the material world and that you need material processes and whether it's evolution or determinism or whatever it is, we're all just kind of biological animals. That's kind of, you know, Marx. Most Christians are not going to be seduced by that. However, this cultural idea is a little trickier. And most people that speak in these categories, because they don't hold the classical Marxism, get really offended if you say, well, that's Marxist. And technically that's actually kind of correct. This is what we would more call neo-Marxism or like he says, cultural Marxism or pseudo-Marxism. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not classical Marxism. So you have this oppressive class and an underpressive class and history is moving somewhere, but where it's moving is to this post-capitalist classless society where everyone in common owns the means of production. Okay, so that's where we get communism, communal, to see communals related to that word, right? And so socialism and communism are kind of the same, but they're not exactly the same. 
Socialism can also mean just well, uh, you know, lots of government handouts or like, you know, the social welfare state. So socialism and communism are not identical terms, just to make sure we're clear on this. Okay, just know that socialism and communism are identical. Communism is like a really extreme version of socialism, if that makes sense. So like if you go to Europe, you go places like Denmark, those are sometimes called social democracies. They still have capitalism. But they have really generous, like uh, social welfare benefits, like you know, free education, free healthcare, and it's not really free, but it's paid for by the state because of taxes. That's socialism, but it's not communism. Are you following me on this? Those are not the identical things. So if you're from Europe or you know Europe a little bit, what happens in Denmark and Norway is not what happened in, say, Soviet Union, right? Just just to make sure we're clear on that, okay? But anyways, because he believes history had this an inevitable sense of progress and that capitalism was doomed to fall and that the revolution was inevitable. What's hilarious is that it happened in the place he least expected it to happen, which is Russia. It was like the most backwards compared to him, right? But there's this belief in progress. That's the thing that you need to understand. And he didn't say it that way, but this belief that there's inevitable progress and that as history unfolds, change is always good because it's gonna get us closer and closer to this classless society. But as Vodibakum points out, and as the Marxists themselves realized, the classical ones, the revolution didn't happen at least not in the way they thought it should. People dug in their heels. They didn't just jump on it because if they realized their class consciousness that they were a part of an oppressed class, surely they would unite and rise up and cast off their capitalist overlords. Surely they would do so, but they didn't. Why? Enter the cultural Marxist. See where he's going to go on this? In other words, it's the explanation for the why the revolution didn't happen. And this is the world we live in now is this cultural one. It's not classical. Most people recognize that businesses and others are actually a good thing. Most people recognize that we've lifted generations of people out of poverty based on the global market, right? And so people recognize that. So there's other issues at stake. I'm going to let him go here for a little bit, and then you're going to get to this next cultural Marxism. But remember, in the italics on your sheet, it says this. Why didn't the revolution happen anywhere? I mean, everywhere. Why didn't capitalism fall? What stopped the revolution from, you know, from forming this utopia that we can all experience, this communist utopia? What's stopping us? This is what's going to get to us the next thing, okay? Here we go. With a couple of goals. Number one, to explain why the revolution didn't occur as Marx thought it would. Marx died in 1888, by the way. So now we get into the late 1800s, the early 1900s. We get into World War I. And there are a couple of players that you need to know if you're going to understand cultural Marxism. One... It's a guy by the name of Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci was an Italian Marxist. Another one is not an individual, but a group of individuals known as the Frankfurt School. Two ideas. One, Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony. Listen to the way one sociologist puts it. Cultural hegemony refers to domination or rule maintained through ideological or cultural means. It is usually achieved through social institutions which allow those in power to strongly influence the values, norms, ideas, expectations, worldview, and behavior of the rest of society. Cultural hegemony. That's the power. 
By the way, this idea of cultural hegemony explains something. Have you ever wondered why women who make up more than 50% of the population are considered a minority? You ever wondered why? Because women are not seen as part of the cultural hegemony. The cultural hegemony is patriarchal. The cultural hegemony, for example, in our society is white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born Americans. You know who you are. And everybody who's not that is a minority. And everybody who's not that is a victim of the cultural hegemony established by those individuals. Which means that everybody who's not that is at war with that. And everybody who is that is privileged. And the more of those boxes you tick off, the more privileged you are. Shame. Listen to this. Gramsci developed the concept of cultural hegemony in an effort to explain why the worker-led revolution that Marx predicted in the previous century had not come to pass. Central to Marx's theory of capitalism was the belief that the destruction of this economic system was built into the system itself since capitalism is premised on the exploitation of the working class by the ruling class. Why didn't it happen? Well, because we're not dealing with economics. We're dealing with culture. Marx missed this part. Or so Gramsci would argue. He, mixed, he missed this part. So the revolution that comes doesn't need to be a, an armed revolution or an, a revolution of force. It needs to be a hegemonic revolution. In other words, we need to change the cultural hegemony. We need to overturn the cultural hegemony. And how do you overturn the cultural hegemony? couple of things. For Gramsci, control the robes of society. What are the robes of society? You know the people who wear robes. Judges. Professors. Pastors. Politicians. Leverage those positions in order to educate and mobilize the masses against the hegemonic power. Use the educational system, the political system, the judicial system in order to overturn the cultural hegemony. Does, does that 
sound at all familiar? This is how you gain power. By the way, in the meantime, how do you gain political power? You gain political power by promising various groups of people that you will advocate for them. That's how you do it. That's why you can have so many white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, able-bodied, native-born American politicians who present themselves as representatives of the people who are not any of those things. That's how cultural Marxism works. Well, there's another group of individuals. Stop here because the bell just rang. The Frankfurt School. We'll go to the Frankfurt School next week, so save this, and I'll have extras too. Um, Here, let me change this again. We'll figure out why my Promethean reset. My guess is it updated on me. (coughs) Pretty familiar when he's talking, see where this language is coming from now? A lot of us hear this in the media, and we're like, what are they talking about? Privilege and fragility. There's your context. You see where this is coming from now? And so why in particular, it seems like in the academy and other places, like think professors or you think like the media, why this sort of language come, is, is a big thing right now. This is old. This is not new. It's just it's it's had a, a different cachet in our cultural environment because with expressive individuals in the first this is where this all connects. If you have no sense of personal identity, if you have no sense and if it's all about you, your expressive individual. Right. You people are social animals, right? That's Aristotle. Man is a political animal. People are social animals. They need friends. They need family. They need connection. And so what you're going to do is if you can't find that from a transcendent source, i.e. God, then you're going to look to your subgroups that you're part of. I need people that relate to me. I need people that connect to me. I need people. So what do you do? You look for people that check all the same boxes that you do. It's tribalism. See what I'm saying? We'll become tribal. And so this actually kind of goes that route. And so he basically says, if you're part of these tribes that aren't part of the Uber tribe, then you're oppressed. See how this works? And so the people that are in this one are privileged, but you are at war with that or at least in conflict, maybe not at war, that he's going, that's a little strong. And for some it is, but not for everybody. If you're at least in conflict or you're misunderstood or you're you're marginalized, whatever term you want to use, make sense? So that's how where these terms are coming from. The Frankfurt School is going to add critical theory to the mix. That's where we're going to get to that. We're going to add, go ahead. So Loudoun County, Virginia Public Schools put out their critical race theory framing called it something different word for word out of Ramsey. And what's interesting, he answered a question I had of do some things trump other things? Because according to the list that Loudoun County put out, Martin Luther King Jr. was an extreme oppressor. Right, because he he didn't he didn't go far enough or he was speaking the language of the system. He was he was native born. Oh okay both parents. He's a Christian. He was educated. His parents were educated. He was heterosexual, cisgendered. Heterosexual, cisgender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The only other box he had on the other side was he's black. But apparently all of those added up to override the black. And I always wondered that. And I mean, it's worth the work. This is exactly where it came from. Right. There you go. And that's what intersectionality is. And we're going to get to intersectionality later. But if you ever hear the term intersectionality, it's all those different areas where you don't check those boxes. So if, and you, I put that on your system there and I, that's why I kind of stopped and he's going to talk about it next week also, because this is going to show up over and over and over again. I'm going to show you some charts next week of how this looks, 
So if like you like you just said, if you're black, but everything else, you're male, cisgendered, able-bodied, native born American, then you've only got one check off, right, in terms of this intersectional idea. But what if you're brown, female, and disabled? Now you got three intersections of oppression, right? And what's what's interesting about these ideas, and this is where I'll give you something to think about going into next week a little bit, is the reason these ideas are seductive is there are like small nuggets of truth underneath them. You know, people wouldn't be just wouldn't just buy into just a complete lie, right? Some of this is patently obvious. People have different experiences. That's true, right? So a Puerto Rican woman in New York City and a white woman in Pocatello have different experiences. I mean, that's just common sense, right? I mean, nobody disagrees with that, okay? But the idea that the entire system, therefore, must be understood through those lenses, now we've got a worldview. See what I'm saying? So it's one thing to acknowledge that every individual has different experiences or different groups of people have different experiences. That is, nobody denies, that's just common sense. Nobody denies that. The question is the framework of the lens in which you look at those things. Okay, that's the issue. And then second of all, as Christians, what is the solution? The solution is our identity in Christ, as I started off with in Galatians. The solution is Christ. The solution is not rearranging the power structures or something like that. You're not going to get a utopia by taking power here and redistributing it somewhere else. Okay. By the way, that's ironic because now you got to rebel against that thing now. We'll talk about that next week. All right, let's close with the blessing. We're getting close to the service. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. So next week we'll continue. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.